Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Welcome to Faith Dialogue. I'm Ken Baer, the pastor. Our Wednesday messages are all a part of a series that we call Pondering Prophecy. And we've had the opportunity to speak to many of the scriptures that are connected and a part of the prophecies attached to what's called the second coming of Jesus Christ. The return of Jesus is the, is the most anticipated event in all of Christianity. Throughout the ages, Christians, whether they were under persecution or not, have found hope and great satisfaction knowing that Jesus, at some time in the very near future, would return. Uh, it's not only Jesus, but we're also told that all of heaven's armies, literally um, heaven's armies that are, are overcoming the armies of the tyrants, of those that are persecuting the body of Christ. Uh, this all happens at the end of the age, uh, associated with the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know, like the prophecies of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, as well as many others, the prophecies that we speak of are, are cloaked in what's called apocalyptic language. It's got symbols and, and beasts and angelic creatures and, and plagues and mysteries, and sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to understand. Now, it was, it was difficult, especially for readers 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, or maybe even 100 years ago, to, to truly understand, truly grasp some of these prophecies. However, when we start seeing some of the signs that are spoken of in these prophecies come to pass, everything starts becoming clearer to us, those of us that are in this generation that we call the generation of these last days. For example, Jesus spoke of the end times and said this. He said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and then the, uh, the author continues, says, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And this is part of uh, Jesus speaking of his second coming in Matthew chapter 24. Now, to the people that were alive at the time, particularly the Jews, this reference of the abomination of desolation was well understood because part of their history that was well known at the time was in 175 BC, a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes, who thought of himself as God in the flesh. In fact, that's what Epiphanes means. It means God manifested. This Antiochus Epiphanes conquered Jerusalem in 175, 176 BC. And then he went into the Holy of Holies in the temple and proclaimed that he was God and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. This was the abomination of desolations. Now, to the people at the time, uh, they believed this was the fulfillment of the prophecy uh, that was spoken of by Daniel, of the little horn that was going to come in and desecrate the temple. Uh, this inclusion, however, by Jesus of these words associating this, antique, uh, this, uh, uh, this abomination of desolation, basically another Antiochus or um, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, 
in, the in a future date connects all of the Old Testament prophecies associated with the end of time to also the second coming of Jesus. And this is very, this is very key. So, so what, what does this mean? Well, it means that, that there will be a generation at some time in the future that begins to see these signs. Now, one of the signs we believe was the reestablishment of the nation of Israel in May of 1948 and the alignment of nations. And, and it's this generation, when these things, when these uh, signs are starting to be seen, the Bible says this generation needs to look up before their redemption draws near. So recently we assembled a, a list of 12 questions. It wasn't a scientific study. We just asked people associated with our ministry uh, what questions they had regarding the end times. And we came up with, with 12 questions and we went through them once and now we're going through them one at a time, a little bit deeper. It's kind of a series within a series. So for the next 25 to 30 minutes, we'll be speaking of question number three today. And that question is, will the church, will, go, will the church go through the tribulation? Question number three. So I want to unpack some of the language and the theological considerations associated with this simple question, will the church go through the tribulation? Um, now, I, at the same time, I don't want to bury my answer for those of you that are tuning in to try to find out what I'm going to say about this. So I'm going to tell you very briefly what I said when we went through all of the 12 questions. Um, there are two reasons why I firmly believe that the church will not go through the tribulation. The first is that the scriptures tell us that God has not appointed us, meaning the church, to wrath. This is the exact words from the Apostle, you, the Apostle Paul used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. He says, For God has not appointed us to suffer wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, the tribulation is the final seven-year period that God has reserved for, for Israel. It's a time of judgment, but also a time of redemption. And it doesn't begin until the age of the Gentiles, this present age, is fulfilled and the age of the church ends. So now that you know where I'm coming from, let me back up, let me slow down a little bit and, and take you through some of the language and the prophecies that are necessary to understand in order to come to this conclusion that the church will not go through the, the uh, tribulation. Now, there have been many books written on this topic by, by many scholars, and their teaching is, is formidable, it's impressive, it's, it's weighty, and quite frankly, it's also very lengthy. It would take us hours to try to approach this subject in any great detail. Uh, in the time that I have, I'll just identify what I consider two key points, two key points that are necessary to understand in order to embrace this commonly held position that the church will not go through the tribulation. If you don't understand these two points, you won't agree. You won't agree with my conclusion. And I humbly say that you won't really understand end time prophecy because these two points are key, are truly key in understanding prophecy. Now the first point is, is, is pretty simple. And it's that God has, has a separate destiny for the Jews and a separate destiny for the church. They're not the same. For hundreds of, if not nearly 2,000 years, the church 
and the people in the church were at odds with the people of Israel or the Jews. And the Jews were often marginalized. They were looked down upon. They were harassed. They were, they were persecuted. However, God has made a covenant with the people of Israel. A covenant, uh, God's covenant cannot be broken. The, there are those who claim to, to be scholars that assign all of these promises given to Israel now to the church. This is sometimes called covenant theology or replacement theology. But we know that this is not how prophecy works. These promises were made to Abraham and his seed. These promises to the people of Israel during the deportation of Babylon uh, uh, were made that God would restore, God would redeem, God would visit his people, and that the Messiah would sit on the throne of David and rule um, from Jerusalem. That's uh, Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 6 and 7. And this is exactly what the people of Israel were looking for when Jesus came on the, sign, on the, on the scene. This is why they, they were expecting Jesus to assume a leadership position, um, a political position in Jerusalem. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus, is, Jesus promises the church that he would come back and take us to be with him. That's out of uh, John, uh, Gospel of John chapter 14. Now both promises, the promises to Israel and the promises to the church will be fulfilled literally. Now Israel is not the church, nor is the church Israel. They are distinct. Both groups are distinct from the Gentile nations. If we do not understand or refuse to accept this truth, that God has promised Israel a future, a time here on earth where the Messiah reigns on the throne of David, we will not understand a prophecy. This belief that God was done with Israel, uh, primarily because they had rejected the Messiah, was, was easy to embrace when the Jewish people were scattered. They were without a, a homeland. In a similar fashion, it was difficult to embrace Israel still as God's chosen people when the Jews were routinely discriminated against when they were harassed and actually banished from parts of, of, of the Roman Empire. Uh, and that, in fact, that continued all the way until the 15th century um, during the Inquisition where the Jews were summarily dismissed and banished from the Kingdom of Spain. Now, of course, when the Zionist movement movement began in the 19th century, culminating with the reestablishment of the nation of Israel in 1948, theology became a little bit more dicey. It became more difficult to embrace a theology that doesn't believe in the re restoration of Israel as according to prophecy when you see it literally being fulfilled in your eyes. Um, Jesus will return for the church. That's, that's clear. That's prophesied. Um, Jesus described his coming in terms similar to a bridegroom returning for his bride. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms, many dwelling places. In the King James it says, many mansions. If that were not so, I would have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. See, this is the, this is the destiny of the church, the bride of Christ. Jesus teaches the same. 
um, in his parable about the foolish and the wise virgins. If you remember that parable, some of the virgins had brought their oil with them. They, had, they were waiting for the bridegroom. The foolish ones didn't bring any oil. And when the, the shout was, came out that the bridegroom cometh, those with the oil were able to go in with the bridegroom and those without were left outside. The Old Testament prophecies also speak to the destiny of the people of Israel. And in these prophecies, we see that the return of the Lord is described differently than for the church. It is a description that is primarily, well, not exclusively for Israel. In the Old Testament um, prophecies of Zechariah, chapter 14, this is what he has to say. He says, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley. It will be a, extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. Now that's the description of the Lord's return to uh, the people of Israel, not exclusively to the people of Israel, but that's the promise given to Israel. Now listen to what the book of Revelation has to say about the same event, the coming of the Lord, and listen to how many of the descriptions are similar. The nations are warring, the Lord returns, and Ezekiel it says the Lord will come with his holy ones. In Revelation that I'm going to read, John will say that in the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, a reference to the church, following him on white horses. And again, this is, this is uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written on it that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of, in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress on the fierceness and the wrath of the Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now while we understand that these are, are separate but related destinies for Israel and the church. And we can find purpose then in the tribulation, which in part is the redemption of, of Israel, but also the length of the tribulation. Because the length of the tribulation is given in the book of Daniel as a week of years or seven years. And then clearly in the book of Revelation, the seven years is broken up so that 42 months, three and a half years or 1260 days is the midpoint. Three and a half years, the midpoint of a seven year period of tribulation. So to, to recap, 
When we understand that the key to understanding these end-time prophecies is Israel, and that the destiny of the church, the bride of Christ, is distinct from the destiny of Israel, um, that's our understanding and that's our first key understanding. Now let's go to the second point, and that is, number two, that the rapture and the second coming of Christ are separate events. I'll say that again. The rapture and the second coming of Christ are separate events. You know, sometimes it's difficult to determine whether a scripture verse is referring to the rapture or the second coming. However, in studying end-time prophecy, it's very important to differentiate actually between the two. Some people have a problem even with the word rapture, uh, but it's just the Latin transcript, uh, translation of a Greek word called harpazo. The Greek word appears in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 and it is translated in most translations as being caught up in most of our English translations. The Greek harpazo means to snatch or to take away. Uh, for example, it's used to describe how the Spirit caught up Philip, the evangelist, near Gaza and brought him to Caesarea. That's out of Ch Acts chapter 8. And it also describes Paul's experience of being caught up into the third heaven that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians. Now, keeping that in mind, this is what the scriptures teach regarding this end-time event. Now, this is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Since we, we just read earlier that when the Lord comes down from heaven, puts an end to the nations warring against Israel, and puts his feet on the Mount of Olive, he comes back with his holy ones, with the saints. This event, however, the rapture of the church, it occurs at some point um, uh, before. Now, it could be a, a minute before, it could be three and a half years before, it could be a full seven plus years before the second coming. The reason we teach that, that happens uh, prior to the second coming, is based on what scripture has to say. First of all, there's a, what was called the doctrine of eminence. The Bible clearly tells us that Jesus can return for his bride, the church, at any time. Again, that is the doctrine of eminence. Eminence means that the Bible teaches that there is no prophetic event that has to happen before Jesus returns. Um, Jesus returns and snatches his bride, the church, from the earth. That's called the rapture. For this reason, the church has always been told to be ready for Jesus to come at any moment. Uh, there's no major prophetic event that has to happen before the rapture, and that doesn't mean that the church will not see some of the signs of Jesus' return. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6 tells us that the start of the tribulation uh, period will begin uh, unexpectedly, like a, like a thief in the night when people are saying peace and safety. Now, that keeping that peace and safety in mind, and Daniel chapter 9 tells us that the abomination that causes desolation that Jesus said to watch for will occur at the middle of a seven-year period or three and a half years 
after a peace treaty has been signed with the nation of Israel in order to provide peace and safety. The rapture has to occur before all of this in order to be truly eminent. For as soon as we see the covenant sign between Israel uh, and the nations, we can begin to count seven years until the second coming, um, as Jesus, or as the Apostle Paul described in Revelation chapter 19. Now, secondly, the Apostle Paul calls the rapture of the church the blessed hope. The tribulation, by contrast, is seven years of literally hell on earth. Seven seals are followed by seven trumpets, followed by seven vials. And all of these bring plagues, wars, famines, destruction, cosmic disturbances. And by most counts, more than one half of the people that dwell on the earth will be killed. They'll die. Now, if we were to use the word blessed hope in describing these events, the seals, the trumpets, and the vials, that would be a very unusual and inappropriate use of words. Third, the scriptures tell us very clearly that the church is not destined for, for wrath. And I use this in my summary, summary statement. The Apostle Paul, writing his first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 5, says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of our hope of salvation. Verse 9 says, For God has not appointed us to suffer wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Now, the best way to understand end time prophecy is to understand this simple saying. The church goes up and the wrath of God comes down. Point number four, and this is key as well. It's the doctrine of what I call the solas, S-O-L-A-S, the solas. Now, during the Reformation, those scholars of the Reformation, people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, uh, uh, penned what was known as the five solas. And these are Latin words. Uh, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, uh, sola Christus, and sola dio gloria. Now those Latin terms just mean um, that we, uh, we have eternal life by Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, through the scriptures alone, and for God's glory alone. Now, nearly every theologian would agree that the purpose of the Great Tribulation would be a time of testipline, a discipline, to discipline Israel and the people that dwell on the earth, to purify them, to bring God's judgment to the unbeliever, and to give those dwelling on the earth one last chance for mankind, typically, to repent. The church, however, in contrast, is the bride of Christ. It has been purified by at the cross. It's the solace. It, that's all we need. We are already exactly who God wants us to be. We're to be given to Christ without spot or wrinkle. The saints of God require neither destruction nor this type of discipline that we see in the, uh, the seven years of tribulation. Uh, that, as a result, we're not to be present during the tribulation. Finally, and this is more of a reading between the lines, this is my last point, uh, we see the church or the ecclesia is mentioned 20 times in the book of Revelation. 
Uh, in the first three chapters, it's mentioned 19 times, primarily when the Apostle John is, uh, is uh, being used to write seven letters to seven churches. Often, these seven churches often represent what's called the church age. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle John sees an open door and hears the words, come up here. And John is then caught up into heaven. Now, what, what, what one word doesn't appear again until the very last chapter, almost the last verse of the book of Revelation, and that word is, was church. And it's only used in that very last sign as kind of like an epilogue that this, this letter, this book of Revelation, was written to the church. We also see a picture and, and a timing of the rapture in Jesus' letter to the church of Philadelphia, one of the seven churches, considered by many to be representing one of the end-time churches that will be present during the second coming of Jesus. The Lord encourages the Philadelphia church with this, these words. He says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. That's Revelation chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, speaking to the church of Philadelphia. Being kept from the hour of trial is just another way of saying to be caught up in the air, to be with the Lord, as we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and that happens prior to the wrath of God during the seven years of tribulation. Now, my final word on this is to be encouraged. I know that many are confused by the prophecies that speak to the end of the days. And sometimes they'll read these, these verses and it will actually uh, create fear and panic. But Paul calls this the, the blessed hope. Regardless of your understanding as to when the Lord is returning or whether the church is taken, please understand that our job remains. We have been commissioned by Jesus Christ, just like an a, a, a officer is commissioned in the army. We're commissioned by the commander. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Notice the context of this very commission refers to the end of the age. In the book of Hebrews, it even answers the question of what we should be doing when we see these things coming, when they see the day approaching. Hebrews, uh, 10, chapter 20, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says this. It says, Let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us not neglect meeting together as some have made a habit, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is why the Apostle Paul calls this time the blessed hope. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for this, this uh, brief teaching on the church. And You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.